0: Thank you so much, Ryan. Take your Bible. Turn to John 11. He is risen. He is risen indeed. We've got to try that one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. It's so good to hear that. I tell you, that's what a joy it is to be here on Easter morning. John 11, uh, throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus dropped hints about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He did that throughout. And uh, all along the while, all of his disciples those who followed him, really did not understand what Jesus was talking about. And they couldn't really completely grasp his, uh, his prophecies, even. Now, I think that, um, that Jesus often works in the deepest, darkest moments of our life to do great things. Jesus does that throughout his ministry, and he does that in our life. And And I have a question for you, and it it might seem disconnected, but it's not. And that question is, how how big is your imagination for what God can do? I I think this depends a little bit on the child, but I had a cousin who was this way. Uh, Imagine if you were to ask a four-year-old, you say, you go and you go to the store, and you say you can buy anything you want. I had a cousin who her dad took her uh, shopping for her birthday, and this became a story in our family because... Uh, we thought it was kind of funny, but, but her dad literally took her to Walmart and said, you can buy anything you want in the whole store. It's yours. Whatever you want, it's yours. And she walked through that store, and she bought a pack of dental floss. <laughs> How big is your imagination? What, what, what do you, if, if God says, I can do exceedingly abundantly above anything you ask or think, why do we so often settle for the small things. We don't think that God can do great things. I think even about um, if you were to ask a kid, what would you want without any limits? Some of them would say, I just want my own milkshake. Our kids get so excited when they get to have their own. The other day we went to Sam's and they all got their own drink. It was a big day, right? Many times our expectations are very underdeveloped, and this morning we see a story of people who were faced with an immense tragedy. They learn just how much Christ loved them it was beyond their imagination. Father, we ask this morning as we look at John 11, you would help us to see your, your passion and also your love for your disciples. And Lord, if we are your disciples, we are those who believe in you, we know that you love us and you care about us. And in a remarkable moment, you showed your power here to this family. And, Lord, we thank you that you showed your power once and for all by rising from the grave. And as we celebrate the resurrection this morning, I pray that we would expand our thinking to include that which you intend for us, not just what we might think is possible. Lord, work with us this morning. Work in us. Work in our hearts. Stir us up. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we talked about John chapter 11 and Jesus being the good shepherd. He has, at this point, made the Jewish very, leaders very angry with him. They desire, they, want, they desire to kill him. They want to get rid of Jesus. He is a, a menace to them. So in verse 40 of chapter 10, it says, he, Jesus, went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and he stayed there. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all these things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him. There we see Jesus then in a different place receiving words from his friends. And and the first point I want to make, and your outline is in your bulletin this morning, is that what the first several verses of this chapter, chapter 11, teach us is that God will work your circumstances for his glory. Now follow along, we'll see that in verse 1. A certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. We have those who are close to Jesus, these are close friends of Christ. And I want you to notice that you should not expect to avoid difficulty by knowing Jesus. They knew Jesus in a very intimate way. They knew him personally. He knew them. Jesus loved them. It says explicitly here that they called Lazarus, he whom you love. And just because they loved Jesus and Jesus loved them back did not mean they were going to avoid getting sick. And I don't want to park too long on this, but I do want, don't want to skip over it either, that sometimes Christians have this idea that God's God's purpose for them is that they are healthy people all the time. Yet Jesus loves us and Jesus loved Lazarus and he allowed there to be a sickness, a very bad sickness and Jesus knew about the sickness and it was not something that he was ignorant of or not something that he cared to stop. In fact, there's a real sweetness to their request in that they show faith. They are knowing that if Jesus so chose, Jesus could show up and at his word, Lazarus would be healed. But but in this request, the truth is that Jesus, being close to Jesus, does not mean you avoid suffering. We see a second point here that you should not expect to always understand what Jesus is doing. There is a theme that runs through the book of John, especially this chapter, of confusion. Many of the people who are face-to-face with Jesus are very confused about what he is doing. So let's read and we'll see that they're first confused by his delay in verse 4. It says that Jesus heard that. He said, this sickness is not unto death but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And there is where we get our main point here, that God will work your circumstances for his glory, the glory of God. The Son of God may be glorified. When we use the word glory, we're talking about his name may be lifted up, that he may be praised, that his reputation gets enhanced because of this. Now, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and his sister and Lazarus. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. He he clearly tells his disciples that this sickness is not unto death. Now, the on-the-face meaning of this phrase is that Lazarus's sickness will not lead him to death but Jesus is not saying that he actually means something different something more than this Jesus is speaking here with words that would be could be understood a couple ways because he means that the sickness will not have this sickness will not have a final result in death because the purpose of the sickness was clear he said God is allowing this sickness I'm allowing this sickness for the glory of God and that the son of God may be glorified in it. So, in order for this to take place, what does Jesus have to do? He delays. He does something that his disciples and his friends were confused about, like if this is a sickness that is is to death or this is a dangerous illness, then why would we not go immediately? So, Jesus says this is not to be worried about. He waits, and that would confuse those around him. They did not go, and then they're confused by his choices. Look at verses 8. I think they, they they thought they understood his reasoning at first, But, and I think they thought that Jesus was afraid because they thought his life might be threatened. But now that he's going to Bethany, when he says, let's go to Bethany, now they're confused. Look at verse 8. The disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And you're going there again? Like Jesus, uh, are you sure you want to go there? Jesus' response is a little bit like a riddle, like an enigma. Again, it seems a little bit confusing to us. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And I I think the point that Jesus is making here is that you only have so many hours to do the work that God has called you to do, and you have responsibilities to do these these works. In John chapter 9, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, for the night is coming when no man can work. I think this is a parallel sentence. I think the idea is, is that it's better to do work while the sun is up. While the time is right then to wait for the sun to go down when you have a very hard time accomplishing your task. And you notice they're also confused by his words. The things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. Verse 12. And his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death because they thought he was speaking about taking rest in sleep. Once again, the disciples are confused. They do not understand what Jesus means when he says Lazarus sleeps. Now, sleep in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish uh, Old Testament, in our Old Testament, often refers to death. It's a a way of talking about death that is a hint there will be a resurrection one day. At, At the resurrection, they awaken. To life. But the disciples missed all of it. And they're they're confused by all this because as you can imagine, they're thinking, Jesus says, I'm going to go wake up Lazarus. They're thinking, wait, we heard he was sick. Now he's sleeping. Why would you wake him up? He'll get better if he sleeps. If he sleeps, that's good for him. And then verse 14, Jesus finally it says, speaks plainly to them. It's like he it's like he stops what he's doing, he looks at them in the eyes, he says, Look, Lazarus is dead. And then verse 15, again confusing, he says, I am glad for your sakes I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. These verses fascinates me because Jesus tells them explicitly, I am glad that you were not there. I'm glad we weren't there to save Lazarus from his illness. That is that Jesus will work our circumstances for the glory of God, and it may not always be obvious in the moment that what he is doing. In fact, it could be completely confusing to us. We might see how in the world could God use this circumstance for his glory. I mean, he's not showing up like, he's, like I thought he would. God, is this is the perfect time for you to come, Lord. Why don't you come now? Lord, please come solve my problem. I'm in trouble. I need your help, and Lord's not coming to solve my problem. The Lord does not enter the scene, and in those moments— we think of, oh, well, I mean, I guess God's not there. No, maybe God is using that circumstance for his glory. Now, in verse 16, we have Doubting Thomas, who we, we, talk, we call Doubting Thomas because of what happens at the end of this book. But notice what he says. He shows a great deal of faith in this verse because Jesus is going back into the teeth of those who want to kill him in order to, uh, to see his friend Lazarus. And Thomas is mustering the other disciples' strength to be willing to go with Jesus and die if necessary to accomplish his purpose. Verse 16 Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. He's assuming if Jesus goes back to Bethany, they're going to face trouble there and they might just die. So let's just go with Jesus and die now. Now, all of these things, they are confused and they don't recognize the fact that God is going to work his circumstances, their circumstances for his glory. We see that in the first few verses of this chapter, but if you keep going, we'll see not only will God work your circumstances for his glory, God will also work your circumstances in order to challenge your faith. The first challenge begins at verse 17 when Jesus challenges Martha's faith. When Jesus came, he found that he had already, that's Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. I mean, two miles. Two miles is a short walk. Two miles wouldn't take you hardly any time to go. Jesus was right there, and he chose not to go. And he had already been in the tomb for four days. All the while, there are many who have gathered to comfort the family. It says many of the Jews had joined the women, but Jesus was not there. Until now, he finally comes, and when he comes... This would challenge Martha's faith. How would that challenge Martha's faith? Well, look at verse 20. Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary sat in the house, and Martha said to Jesus. So again, Martha goes out of the house. She goes and meets Joseph on the, uh, Jesus on the road. It's like she hears Jesus coming down the road. She hears that he's coming, and she runs out to him. She is the active one of the sisters. We know a lot about Martha. We know she's the worker. She's the active one. She's the aggressive one. And she goes out to meet Jesus, and she confronts Jesus directly. And I think a lot of us have confronted Jesus in our own words in these ways. She says, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Now think about the faith it takes to make that statement. No one could say that about me. I've been in many deathbeds. I've been to many people's sides as they're getting ready to cross over from this life to the next. I've never had a family member look at me in the face and say, Marshall, if you'd have been here, my brother or my husband or my my father would not have died because I can't do anything about that. I I am powerless to help. And in fact, most doctors are powerless to help. When God wants to take a brother home, he takes a brother home. However, Jesus is not not your normal person. He's a son of God. He's God in the flesh. And here he comes, and Martha knows that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus might have been healed, would have been healed. But her faith has a very limited perspective. To her, once Lazarus died, it's over. Just forget about it. I mean, Jesus, you had your opportunity to save my brother from his illness, and you did not work, therefore you failed. That's the implication of what she's saying, because she believes that Jesus had authority. Verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. It's almost like she says it, and then she says, well, I know that you can do whatever you want. I, I don't know if she really is asking Jesus to raise Lazarus from the dead here or not. I, I don't know, but she, she seems like she's submissive to whatever Jesus decides, even though she's confrontational, she recognizes that she, she, her prayers for healing had not been answered. God said no to her he, prayers for healing. She had prayed that Lazarus would be healed. She'd wanted Jesus to come. She had sent someone to go get Jesus. Jesus had chosen to not come. And then Jesus reminds her of some truth in verses 23 through 24. If you notice, in verse 23, he says, Your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She doesn't understand that Jesus is giving her immediate hope. Jesus is saying, your brother will rise again. And she says, yeah, I know at the end times. And then Jesus says, no, no, it's not in the end times. In fact, if you notice what he wants her to see is that he begins to, to explain his identity to her in verse 25 through 27. This is just as the woman at the well needed to hear that Jesus was the water of life, and just as the people, who the 5,000 who had been fed in the wilderness needed to hear that Jesus was the bread of life, now Jesus explains his identity to his friend. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me Though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Here is another one of Jesus' I am statements. Jesus gives many of these through the book of John. He is both the resurrection and the life. He is shifting Martha's perspective from a general understanding of a resurrection that would one day happen to the person of Jesus before her. He says, no, don't think about that. Think about me, Jesus says. He is the source of life. He is the one who brings back from the dead. And as long as you believe in Christ, he says, you will live even though you die. Now, there are two deaths there mentioned. The first is the physical death. The physical death or separation of the soul from the body. The second death is a separation of man from God. He says, you may die physically, but you will never die spiritually if you are in Christ. You may die, but you will live because you're in Christ. And you will never die. You will never be separated from God because nothing can separate us from the love of God, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing can separate you from the love of God when you're in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord. We have this hope. We have this faith. And then he directly confronts her and He, I think he points right at her. He says, do you believe this? Do you believe this? It's not enough that it is true. Yes, it is true. It is true that he is the resurrection and the life. But do you believe this? Because unless you believe this, you will experience the judgment of God. You will experience the penalty of your own sin. You will not experience life. You will die and you will die. In Genesis chapter 3, when God warns Adam and Eve, he says, in the day that you eat of it, you will die and die. Dying, you will die. And our translation says, you will surely die. You will be separated from God at that moment. And friends, when Adam and Eve, in the day they ate of that tree, they did not actually fall down dead. They lived, but they died. Because in that moment, they knew that they were separated from God, and death is separation from God. And here he says, you who die will still live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And she agrees with his power in verse 27. She recognizes Jesus is asking her about his identity, so she confesses his identity as several things. One, You are the Christ, that is Messiah, the chosen one, the Christos, the Mashiach. You are the Son of God, the very Son of God, the deity of God Himself, and you are coming into the world. That means He is pre existent. Jesus is the pre existent one, the Son of God. He did not begin as a baby on Christmas morning. He came into the world as the preexistent eternal Son of God as described in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then God was the one who created all things. Then Jesus, after dealing with Martha, turns his attention to Mary's faith in verse 28. He said these things. He went, she went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. And as soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now, Jesus had still not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him, and the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, they followed her, saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Jesus is still outside. And, and, and he's still being, we don't know what happens in the meantime, perhaps he's talking to people, whatever, he's probably surrounded by folks and Martha comes and whispers in her sister's ear and says, hey, the master wants to talk to you and she leaves without saying a word, she leaves with such haste that the people think that she is going to mourn at the tomb and so they follow and now a whole crowd is coming out because she, they think she's going to weep for her brother, That she, but she is instead going to see her Lord and when Mary comes to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell down at his feet and worshiped and she said Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Once again, she directly confronts Jesus with her loss. She says, Lord, I, I, I wish you had been here. And I, I think the fact that both of these women say the exact same thing means that they had said this between the two of them for many days now. In the four days that Lazarus had died, Martha had probably looked at Mary and said, if the Lord had been here, he would not have died. And Mary looked at Martha and said, if the Lord had been here, he probably would not have died. And so when they see Jesus, what comes out of them is, Lord, if you'd have been here, Lazarus would not have died. They they, they believe that Jesus could have done something, but he did not show up in time. Jesus has power over sickness. But once their brother dies... They did not think that Jesus could do anything about it then. Her emotions is that she was deeply disturbed. She was weeping. She was beside herself. She lost the brother whom she loved so much. In verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, I want you to notice the next several things. Jesus groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Jesus felt compassion for the loss of Lazarus, even though he knew what was going to happen. Jesus, there, if you want to underline some things, here's one. Jesus groaned within himself. That means he like grit his teeth and his heart hurt. You've been there. A lot of you have been there. You've been with people and your heart aches and your stomach feels like you can't eat, like upside down and you just hurt and you groan within yourself because of great loss. In verse 34, and he said, where have you him? laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then the two powerful words in our Bible, John eleven thirty five, 35. Jesus wept. Our Lord had great emotional pain. He felt for his friends. He felt the loss they experienced. He wept with them. He wept for them. Yes, he knew they would experience joy, but in that moment, he knew that they were experiencing a kind of pain that overwhelms you, and Jesus came alongside them, and he wept with them so much so that the story that has been going at quite a pace stops and focuses on Jesus, and John points our attention at the Lord who sits there and weeps. (coughs) Jesus wept, and then Jesus said. He challenged the group's faith. I'm sorry, the Jews then approach Jesus, and they say how he loved him. Some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind had kept this man from dying? Once again, their limited perspective was that they believed he could open their eyes, but once once Lazarus was gone, Jesus did not care enough to save his life. Expectations were underdeveloped, were very limited. Notice verse 38, Jesus once again, if you underlined groaning, he groans again within himself. And he came to the tomb, and there was a cave, and there was a stone. And years later, when Jesus himself died on the cross, was buried in a tomb, there would also be a tomb and a stone. But here, as Jesus looked at the tomb, he looked at the stone, he sorrowed with them. Because of their lack of understanding, he shared in their pain, I believe, what Isaiah said identifies Jesus here. He was despised and rejected by man. Notice how Jesus is described. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was a man of sorrows. Jesus loved his friends. And then Jesus challenged the group's faith by telling them to do something extraordinary. Look at verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone." Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench. He has been dead four days. It could take a crowd to move that stone, and why would he do such a thing? Why would Jesus punish these sisters by opening up this tomb that had been sealed and having them confronted with the stench of this body? Why would they do such a thing? Why would Jesus demand that they open a stone so he could perhaps pay his respects to this dead friend of theirs. Why would Jesus be so insensitive to this? And I don't know what all they were thinking, but they did not understand what he was doing. And they looked at each other and said, Lord, what are you doing? This is really not smart. Don't you know anything about dead bodies? They did not have the kind of processes we have today. And and then Jesus said to her, verse 40, "Did did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? He confronts her, and they took away the stone. And at some point between verse 40 and 41, somebody gives the nod of approval. And these men go to the stone, and they, and they look at each other like, oh, I, guess, I guess we're doing this now. And they, and they push the stone away from the tomb, and they took away a place where the dead man was lying. And there was a dead man in that tomb. And they did what Jesus asked. This reminds me a lot of what happened at the wedding of Cana, Jesus' first miracle there, where, where Mar- Mary's mother says, well, do whatever he says. And they fill the pots with water, and they go about doing their stuff, and out comes wine out of water, and here they do what Jesus asks. Jesus challenged their faith. He worked their circumstances to challenge Martha's faith, Mary's faith, the group's faith. They had to understand his identity and believe his identity. Now they would see it, because God will work your circumstances to show his power and his love for you. Look at what happens in verse 41, the rest of that verse it says, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, "Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this that they may believe you sent me." Now, everything that Jesus had done to this point was on purpose. He delayed on purpose. He came for a purpose. He questioned for a purpose. And now he prays for a purpose. He lets them know that this is his union with the Father, the complete unity of Father and Son. He wants them to understand his identity, that they are in union together, working as Father and Son. God had completely united. And then in verse 43, we see a call. Now the voice of Christ was the one who comforted the weak, who had puzzled His disciples. He now calls out with the kind of power that shakes us to our very being, because this man is the creator of the universe. He is the one with life in himself, as John ten says. He is the one who has made all things and sustains all things. And when he makes a pronouncement, nothing can stand in his way. Jesus has just said, "I am the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice." And now we see there is a dead man in the tomb in verse. 41, the dead man was lying there. A dead man wrapped in burial clothes for the past several days. No one doubted the place where that man was. And Jesus was not foolish either. He knew that Lazarus was room temperature. But look at the verse. If you look at this verse, John eleven forty-three. 43. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And when Jesus spoke the words, there is no mere teacher, there is no here, no, no mere mortal. This is not just a man who speaks parables. This is a man who speaks with absolute authority. He speaks with authority enough to call the dead, and the dead cannot but listen. What power is in the voice of this Savior of ours who calls with a loud voice? Now, he could have whispered. He could have just whispered the voice. He could have thought the voice. He did not have to speak, and yet he did because he wanted there to be no doubt who was responsible for this resurrection. Jesus cried out. He cried out with his voice, and he called out to the dead man, Lazarus, come forth. And every person there was stunned. Every person there looked towards the tomb, and there was a response. And the response in verse 44, as everyone stood back watching, and he who had died came out Bound hand and foot with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, Loosen and let him go. Amen. Now you think about this. The man who had died came out. What, did, what does that even mean? Like he had died. He was dead. And he walks out. And he stands before them. And, and I don't know. I was talking with someone this week. And I was like, you know, I was meditating on this. And as I tend to do, I, like, try to picture this story happening in my mind, and I wonder how long it took Lazarus to get up and, and work his way to the, to the tomb entrance. Like, it could have been a few seconds, and, and that would have been a really interesting few seconds to stand there, everyone's standing and watching to see what's going to happen, and all of a sudden, you think you see a little shadow of something in the tomb, and then, oh, it's, it's Lazarus, and Lazarus is coming out of the tomb wrapped in his clothes, in his garments, in, in his wraps of these linen cloths that they would wrap you to bury you in. And, and then the most amazing thing is that as, after Jesus has called this dead man to life, Jesus has to tell everybody to let him loose. Like, they're, they're just standing there thinking, like, what's gonna, what are we doing? What happens now? And Jesus has to say, look, what you need to do now is you need to go unwrap him so you can say hi, Right? And 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 the, oh oh yeah right <laughs> so they go they go to, to Lazarus and they and they unwrap him so to speak they loose him and they let him go. Jesus is the one who gives the command, and in doing so, he shows his power and his love for them. Because what Jesus did in showing his love for them was was far greater than their expectations were. When they they really just wanted Jesus to heal their brother, and Jesus said, "No, I want something better. I want to raise your brother." I want to do something far greater than you can imagine. Your your expectations are this big, and you get mad at me when I don't meet those small expectations, but Jesus says, I have something far greater for you to see. Jesus fulfilled his identity here as the resurrection and the life. Later, Jesus would go and would die for the sins of the world, be buried in a guarded tomb, and his death was not permanent because he is the resurrection and the life. Now, the promise in that declaration is astounding. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I have the same question for you this morning that Jesus asked Martha when she was grieving Jesus pointed her to hope in himself. This morning, no matter who you are, you must answer the call to believe. You must answer this question, do you believe this? Strip away all of your traditions, strip away all of your past, strip away all these things that you've thought before, and ask yourself, do I really believe in Jesus Christ, who is the resurrected Messiah? Do I believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Without that faith, you have no hope. But with that faith, you have a great hope, a great, the greatest hope of all, that no matter what happens, though we may die, yet shall we live. Our hope is in this Lord. Praise God. We have a hope in him who is far greater than you could ever imagine. We have a very underdeveloped expectation of what God can do. We are children buying dental floss when everything is open. The thing is, though, what we think is great, God's expectations for greatness are not always the same thing. And very often it's confusing to us why God works the way he does. May I challenge you to place your hope in the one who raises the dead. There's no one better to hope in. Let's bow for prayer. Father, bless the remainder of our day today. Thank you for this time we've gathered to worship. As we open your word, may we be stirred in our hearts to worship you, to love you, to believe you. As we ask ourselves, do I believe this? And if I do, Lord, you promise that I will never die. I will never be separated from you because nothing can separate you me from your love. Every head bowed and every eye closed, I believe it's our responsibility to ask at a time like this, is there someone who needs to trust Christ as their Savior this morning? I'm not going to call you to walk the aisle or come down front, but if you would be so kind as to think about this and pray about this, I'm going to pray in a moment. I'd ask you to raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need to talk to someone. Pastor, I need to sit down with someone and and understand what the Bible says about eternal life because I don't think that I have trusted Jesus. I don't think that I know this Christ. I've been living a lie or I've been wandering aimlessly or I've just never really thought about it before or I've rejected Christ many times, but today's the day I want to accept him. I don't know which one is you. But friend, today would be a wonderful day on Easter Sunday, 2022, to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, and to receive that gift of eternal life. Would you be that person? Father, I pray for those right now who are struggling with this moment, who are struggling with this decision, that they would receive you by faith, they would profess you by faith. Lord, you'd help them to see their need to repent to change their mind about themselves and about you, that they would recognize your authority in their life. They would bow their knee before you in faith, trusting in the work of Christ on the cross to save them. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Friend, is that you? Would you raise your hand in this moment? Say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you. But if that's you, say, Pastor, please pray for me. I'd like to talk to you or someone about what it means to be saved. I want to know that I have eternal life. Also for you believers, I'm speaking to you as well as I say this. I'd say there are many of us who have a very underdeveloped expectation of what God is doing. We do not expect God to do great things. We should attempt great things for God because we should expect Him to work on our behalf and work for His glory So today, maybe you need to confess your frustration with God and ask him to forgive you for that, and then submit to him in love and in hope, knowing that his power is so good and so great. Lord, I pray that you bless the remainder of our service as we come before you now with our hearts tender. May you work in Jesus' name. Amen.